Kristen, you and I went on a different kind of date recently, the kind of date we don't usually go on. Uh, to that key party? <laughs> <laughs> we did don't not go tell to the listeners party. about the key party. Oh, shh, shh. It wasn't keys. No. Oh, Kristen. Um, <laughs> are there any pictures of you in your mask? I hope not. I hope not. My eyes were wide shut. <laughs> <laughs> no, Kristen, the date that I'm talking about is a theater date. You and I went and saw some live theater. Yes, with singing. With singing. Yes, it, right uh, here in New York on Broadway. That was that was wonderful. That was a fantastic, fantastic time we had. Um, yeah. Not something we usually do. Uh, you know, usually it's popcorn and soda. This time it was, you know, scotch and gin. Those were delicious cocktails, Boy, by the way. Yes, indeed. Uh, so that was very adult, very sophisticated. And what we saw, of course, was Jersey Boys. Also adult and sophisticated. Indeed. <laughs> We saw this in preparation, of course, for the big screen version of the musical. The play has been running since 2005 on Broadway. It's been a smash hit. And now Clint Eastwood is delivering his version of Jersey Boys. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about another movie that you wouldn't think has a connection to Jersey Boys, but does. It's Think Like a Man 2, a mostly African-American romantic comedy sequel. You wouldn't think it has a connection there. But it does. We're going to talk about both these movies in a minute. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway. And this is Movie Date. That was pretty off-key, wasn't it? God. You know I want this to be a musical singing podcast. I've been pushing for this for years to make this a musical singing podcast. Why don't you come out? <laughs> That's really Nick Massey. Nick Massey, basis for the Four Seasons. Sherry, <laughs> Sherry, baby. I'm not even going to try to do a Frankie Valley. Oh, so good. We didn't even mention, obviously, because it, it sort of goes without saying that Jersey Boys is the story of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, uh, a bunch of small-time Bugs. hoods from, <laughs> from, from New Jersey who wind up becoming, you know, one of the most successful acts of the 60s and 70s. Chart toppers, a string of hits. Oh, Sherry, yeah. Walk Dozens Like a Man. Uh, boy, what else? Uh, Ragdoll, oh, Dawn. Ragdoll, Dawn, great one. Come um, on, Marianne. Yeah, so uh, many songs. Uh, so uh, so uh, Jersey Boys was one of, not really the first uh, jukebox musical, but I, but I feel like one of the earlier ones that really launched this craze that we're in now of, uh, of the jukebox musical craze, taking a, a pop group, a nostalgic pop group from the past, mining their catalog of hits and somehow squeezing them into a narrative. It's a very, it's a different approach from sort of a different approach from the usual stage musical, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. To the point where some people might even say it's not even a musical. <laughs> well, right. right. <laughs> they might just say like, oh, this is just like Coal Miner's Daughter. This is just following someone's career. We're going to drop some songs in here. Right. Well, I think what's interesting about it is, to me, the definition of a musical is when the narrative is told through the songs. Mm-hmm. And to me, and jukebox musicals are just just a hair different because what you've got are songs that are kind of associated or related to the story. I mean, you can look at something like Mamma Mia, which is 
just ridiculous. It's it's oh, it's just I love the, Mama Mia. Everyone loves Mama Mia, but it's the barest excuse for a story. No, and the songs, but that, but ju- the I songs just with barely you. kind no. of fit the occasion. Mama Mia, actually, they did make up an outlandish plot to go with it. Yeah, it's sort Whereas of. Whereas I think Jersey Boys is just like let's just tell the backstory of this band, which I think is a little lazier. Actually, oh, I disagree. The, back, the you know when. Because, you know, that's like, oh, let's just make it a biographical story you can do with any band. It's like, oh, this is how they rose to fame, and here they are being famous. And that's so many of these things. Okay, now, I I know what you're saying because you're going to have to have some of the – there are always these certain beats you're going to have to hit in yeah. the rise to fame story, right? Yes. There's, you're gonna, there's, some, you know, there's got to be a, a you know interpersonal tension, uh, a death perhaps that, that shows, you know, what you've given up uh, to be a star. Um, you know, the, Are we going to make this band work or are we going to fight and break up? Right. Exactly. You know, there's, there's, are we going to get signed to our first label now, or are we going to have to make this label thing happen ourselves? Right. The big hit, the moment it all starts. You know, there's going to be a bottoming out. There's going to be a comeback. I mean, it, you have to have all these things, and that's and that's fine. I think what sets Jersey Boys apart as a story is that nobody knows this story. To me. The, the the story of of these guys was was completely unknown, you know. And I'm and I'm a former music critic. I'd never heard any of this stuff before. That they were actually like these guys were, you know, going in and out of jail in the early days. That they had these deep deep mob ties to New Jersey. That they that they, that they couldn't escape e- even at the height of their fame. They were still being dragged back in by the new the New Jersey mob. I never knew any of that, and I thought the the story of without spoiling too much because I think a lot of it should be kept kind of secret. The story of what Frankie Valley does for one of his bandmates, Tommy DeVito, it's pretty uh, the, incredible. The sacrifices that he makes there, it is it's it's extraordinary, and um, you know, and some of some of the, the you know at least one event in Frankie Valley's personal life was also um, not very well explained, which made me feel like maybe it's still kind of a sensitive subject, but. Um, that hit me as well. Um, so I really loved the story. So I think what that play had going for it really were was not just the songs, but the story. Um, and I think it's great to see it in you know in a live theatrical setting. But the movie, Rafer. Ah, uh, but the movie. I see the look on your face, eh? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so I Let's think we start we've... off by saying, by the way, that Clint Eastwood. Both of us were scratching our heads when we first heard that Clint Eastwood was directing this. Yes, it does. It doesn't make sense because you still think of Clint Eastwood as you know the the spaghetti western and dirty hairy guy, um, and and also these kind of dramas that you know like Million Dollar Baby and and um, Gran Torino and things. You don't think of, think of him as musical guy, but when I saw the mob ties in the story. It made a little more sense. And, you know, Clint Eastwood's a huge jazz fan. He's a musician. He's a composer. Um, so it does make some sense. Anyway, let's play a quick clip from the movie version of Jersey Boys. Bob Crew? Uh, Crew. Uh, listen, we got something for you, all right? No, just listen. Just listen. Two, three, four. Sherry. Sherry. Set up the A-track. What for? We're going to double Frankie's voice. It's going to explode right off the radio. I've never heard of that before. Because it's never been done before. I'm a genius. All right, Rafer. We yeah. know you have issues with this movie. I have some issues. What are these issues you have with this movie? Because I'm just going to say straight up front, 
I felt like it was almost a scene for scene copy. It is. It is. It is uh, line for line. And, and if you love the musical that much, then why wouldn't you want a carbon copy on screen? Well, because it costs fourteen dollars as opposed to the hundred and forty dollars that you're going to pay <laughs> on Broadway, and you don't have to leave Wichita to see it. Uh, that's one reason. But I think yes, you're right. It, he took a he took a three hour play and squeezed it down into about two hours and thirteen minutes. I think is the running time, and it is it is with a few exceptions. Really, the, the the dialogue is almost verbatim. A few little things have been switched around. Uh, every beat is there. It is essentially the play right down to what I found to be... The curtain call at the end. The, cur- <laughs> the curtain call at the end. Uh, so there is that with uh, the villains and the heroes all dancing together and taking their bows. Yeah, a little odd. I think the, the problem is that he also takes some... Uh, Eastwood also takes some of the theatrical conventions and transplants them into the film, the main one that I'm guessing many critics are going to be talking about, and maybe people will be split on whether this works or not, is having the characters step out of the action and address you, the audience. Everyone in the four seasons gets a chance to look at you, talk to you, the audience, and give his side of the story. On stage, I thought that worked really well, really beautifully, um, because it's a live, in, a somewhat interactive setting. You you just feel that live energy. In the movie version, I didn't think that worked very well. It took me very often out of the action and made me feel like I was watching something else. And the rest of the film, though, is very straightforward. All the rest of the all the rest of the scenes are played really straight, like it's just a totally like it's Ray or walk or walk the line or something. Um, mm-hmm. Just a straight ahead biopic, with these odd moments of people saying, "Oh, and by the way, talking to me." I found that jarring. How about you? Well, I also found that jarring, but I actually the thing I found more jarring about the movie was because they were copying everything scene for scene, including the talking at the audience. I felt like it wasn't taking advantage of the fact that this is a movie. And it reminded me of a lot of the early days of musicals on film where it just sometimes felt like they just decided to set up a camera and let them do their thing. Mm -hmm. And what I want if I'm seeing a movie is I want everything to feel cinematic. I want it to be large. I want everything to be what you can't do on the stage. Right. And I felt like in this movie... They didn't decide to do all those things. No, and I think I think some of that has to do with the production, uh, by which I mean um, the, the 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 streets of New Jersey are clearly sound stages that look very phony. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when there's a conversation between two people in a car and they're driving on the street, it's very clear that they're being pulled on a giant flatbed yes. truck, and or possibly some of the scenes the scenes look so odd that I, I almost suspected green screen in the yeah. background. But but. That just bugged me. This is a movie. Yeah. Let's be a movie. Let's not – we've already seen the stage play and even if you haven't seen the stage play, you're not going to a movie to see a stage play. Right. But – and I guess I would say, you know, it it, it was this weird – it was this weird uh, in between – somewhere between Chicago, the movie, right, which is very splashy and jazzy. And, oh, I love Chicago. And takes place sort of not in a world, right? It mm-hmm. takes place in some kind of dis- disembodied – Otherworldly. Right. Yeah. In some sort of space. And then, you know, so it's a little it's a little bit that, but not nearly as splashy or stylish or fun. And then it's also this like just totally straight ahead biopic, like we were said, like Iron Lady or, or, or <laughs> you know what I mean? Or George A. Edgar uh, by Iron Clint Eastwood. Lady, Jersey Boys. Right. Same movie. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but I just felt that it so and so so you have kind of little bit fantasy, little bit reality. And somewhere in the middle, what you get is fake. And I, and I don't feel like it. I don't feel like ultimately it works. 
I still think the story is fantastic. I think the actors are really good. A lot of original guys from the Broadway production, um, John Lloyd Young, who does Frankie Valli. And I, one guy I thought was fantastic was Vincent Piazza, uh, not an original uh, stage member, but he plays Tommy DeVito, one oh, of the yeah. main members. He was great. He's really good. And when he's on screen, I really love the movie. When he's not on screen, I didn't like it quite so much. Um, it's a good it's a good date, but not a but well, I'm not even sure I'd go so far as to call it a good date. It's it's an okay date. It's an okay date. You? I would agree with you. I think it's an okay date also. And I wonder also if we hadn't seen the stage show beforehand, if we'd feel differently about it. I wonder too. But um but Oh I wonder, wonder. Oh. <laughs> I had to do that. That was wonderful. That was pretty dopey. Just um, keep doing that. Just keep doing it. I so, have to agree with you. Kind of a, uh, not, uh, a great, not a great date. I wanted it to be better. I wanted it to be spectacular. I wanted them to do everything they couldn't do on that little stage we saw. Yeah, And right. they just didn't take those risks. They didn't go those places, and they should have. I agree. I it. agree. Do it. Coming up next, we have an interview with two of the cast members and the producer of Think Like a Man 2. Now, Rafer, you and I loved the original Think Like a Man that yes, came indeed. out in 2012. Yes. Much to the surprise of some of our listeners, we really loved the first one. Which, Much to my own surprise. Yes, which is kind of a battle of the sexes movie between yeah. the men and the women in the world of dating. And um, the the sequel takes place in Las Vegas, two of the... Members of this, this group of friends are finally going to get married. Uh, Michael and Candace, uh, played by it's Terrence J. and uh, Regina Hall. Um, the cast is too, almost too numerous to mention. Jerry Ferrara, Megan Good, Gabrielle Union. Yeah, it's just packed. And obviously Kevin Hart, who, you know, who, who basically rose to fame with the first movie and is now back. But, you know, it's, it's a bachelor party. It's set in Las Vegas. There's also a bachelorette party. Things go wild. Everything comes together at the end. That's the basic setup, I think, for the, uh, for the sequel. Let's play a quick clip. So I've been giving this a lot of thought. I want you to be my best man. Me? No, said actually, I was talking to Don. No, listen, don't say nothing right now, man. Like, I knew you and I had a connection, but this is crazy. Let me tell you something. This means so much to me. I'm not going to let you down. Let me tell you something. I'm going to be the best, best man in the history of all best men. I've always wanted to be a best man. You going to give me that opportunity? We came here to golf, and now you going to give me this blessing? I got I to gotta go to the bathroom, Dom. This is... This little light of mine. So, Rafer, unfortunately, you were not here for this, but... Very unfortunate. Two of the cast members and the producer stopped by the studio, and I got to talk with them yesterday. That would be Oscar nominee Taraji P. Henson, who I just love. Yep. You might remember her also as Brad Pitt's mom in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. (laughs) We also had the extremely handsome Michael Ely. Oh, my God. Man, that Michael Ely. Oh, my God. He's so handsome. And Will Packer, who's the producer of the Think Like a Man films, and he also produced Ride Along, which was out earlier this year. He's produced just tons and tons and tons of movies. So they stopped by. And the first thing I wanted to talk with them about was really about the depiction of gender in these movies and how I, I really love how the women get along with each other in these mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. And there's no backstabbing, there's no competition, and these are just good, supportive girlfriends, and the guys are supportive of each other. 
nobody's being bad to each other. Everyone's doing the best thing. I mean, maybe the men and women fight against each other, sure. but, but the women always support each other. So I, I asked them all about that, and this is what they said. Especially among African-American women, it could be more catty than just every every woman in Hollywood because there are not enough roles for us. So a lot of times we're often... Um, going after the same role. But that's the great thing about Will. He knows how to put a cast together. And once you put an incredible cast together, the job is done. You know, literally, and I know Tim is an amazing director, and yet it's still the director has his job. But literally when you have the cast, you basically set the block and you put the camera up and the magic happens because of the chemistry with the people. You know, and it's just beautiful when you can go to work with so many beautiful women and no one is trying to backstab or backbite or talk about each other. It's like, it's real genuine camaraderie between us. And if I could just just kind of piggyback on that, one thing about the, you've got, you know, five classy African-American women, beautiful women, smart, intelligent. We got enough imagery of the drama and tearing each other down and, you know, in each other's faces. And that's just really not the imagery at all that I ever want to propagate, that I ever want to be a part of, especially not when I got a cast like this. And sure, we could do that and that could be fun and that could be drama and provocative. But also, I think to have them like be sisters and still having fun. Like, I mean, they they cut up. They do some things in this movie that are not all just perfect. These are flawed characters. But I don't want to be a part of continuing to propagate imagery of African-American women fighting with each other, being and, catty, mm-hmm. being that, each other's that, faces. Actually, that's not even my reality. Like, At all. all my right. girls that I, I have, my friends have been my friends since high school, college, I've never experienced that with any of my girlfriends. So that's not even my reality. I'm amazed that that is out there so much because most of my friends, most of the girls I know, we don't have that in our lives either. And we're like, why is this everything we see in the movies? Why is it always on TV? Michael, you're smiling, but you don't understand. You're a man. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. I'm very much aware of it. I, 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 I don't enjoy that stuff because I don't think it's real. I think it's all set up. You know, and I think, and I agree with Will. It's, it's like if, you know, it's out there. Okay, great. We don't need to be a part of it. Another thing I want to talk about with depictions in the media, people of color. Now, something Rafer and I talk about on the podcast, we field questions about this. People of color are either in supporting roles frequently in the movies, completely invisible in the movies. Mm-hmm. We don't see the roles for people of color that in 2014 one would hope that we'd have, mm-hmm. considering the demographics of the U.S. at this point and so on. And I've noticed a lot of your films, Will, do have predominantly casts with people of color. Is Do you think that's the best solution at this point? Well, you know what? And you'll get three different perspectives because we all come at it from a, a, a different position within the industry. In my position, I take it uh, as a very serious responsibility to put those positive images out there of people of color. And the reality is that America is changing. The There is an economic reality to the ethnic diversity. Of America, okay. So by that I mean that if you're a content producer and you're not making movies that showcase the real America where people can relate and see themselves, then your content is not going to be as profitable. So I think the days of just having all just white, white, white movies are changing. 
Also, though, the days of having just all black cast will also change. I think we're getting to a point where you will have diverse movies with diverse content that aren't necessarily ethnically or culturally specific, which is another thing in my movies that I'm proud of. I think that if you go, you see Thing Like a Man too. that could be any cast of any it's color. It's not a black movie. It's and really not. I hate not. that we do that as people. We put so much power in these words. When you say black movie, it makes people that are non-black say, oh, that's not a movie for me. But when you talk about a white movie, you don't say, oh, I'm going to go see a white movie this weekend or I'm going to go see a <laughs> black movie. No, I see the trailer and I'm moved and I either want to go spend my money on it or I don't. Right. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter about the people because because when you talk about human emotions, everybody, you know, that's colorless. You know love, you know hate, you know hurt, you know pain, happiness, joy. We all know that as humans. We know that. So why do we put a color on it? Right. Just because the the character just happens to be black. So is black pain different than white pain or Asian pain or Latin pain? Like, I don't, it's stupid. We, we the, the words, we got to stop with the word game. Michael, do you have I, any thoughts? I, I am, uh, you know, I, I agree. I think it's. I think, unfortunately, it's just now starting to happen. That's what's kind of bad about it. It's like it's just now starting to happen. We're just now starting to see movies with a predominantly black cast that is being seen by everybody. Um, because a lot of the movies, there was somewhat of a, of, of a black film renaissance in, in, in the 90s. And those movies completely flew under the radar and a lot of people didn't see them. And, you know, and so... Now, um, <clears throat> because of the success, I think, of like Think Like a Man, we're kind of starting this transition into films where people of color, uh, white people, they can all be in a movie and people just go see it. Because mm-hmm. honestly, I want to see that. You know what I mean, it doesn't. It, and like you said, like Taraji said, there's no label to it. It is just we, just you know, people. that's this. We're at the very beginning of that. And, and, I, and I, I guarantee in about 10 years, we won't be. You know, everybody will just be going to see a movie because it's a movie. That's right. Mm. That's and it's right. even starting to happen in animation. Have you noticed that? They mm-hmm. start to have a little more color in the animation it's about movie. time. They're it's extras time. right now, yeah. but, you know, they're moving <laughs> up. <laughs> I am so sorry, but we are already out of time. This was fun. But I just wanted to thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you for having Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Will Packer is the producer of Think Like a Man and Think Like a Man 2. Taraji P. Henson and Michael Ely are two of the stars of the Think Like a Man films. Great interview. It sounds like you had a lot of fun. If I had been there, I would have asked them why they were always picking on Jersey Boys. What? Do you remember in the movie, the the nerdy white guy, Gary Owen, an actor who plays Bennett. that's right. All he wants to do is go see Jersey Boys. Oh, everyone's, that's right. Everyone's trying to drink and party and, and you know, go to the strip club. And, and <laughs> Bennett keeps saying, Jersey Boys. Jersey Boys won eight Tonys. <laughs> and I thought, ah, Jersey Boys is shorthand for nerdy white guy. I get it. Oh, Rafer, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's totally me. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I have to say during the top of this week's podcast, I had no idea where you were going when you said there was a link between these two. There you go. I sewed it all up for you, You, Kristen. You did it. You did it. All right. Well, shall we we move on to some movie therapy? Yes, indeed. All right. Let's get on the couch. What seems to be the trouble? Can I confess something? I'm just trying to tell you about my feelings. He's been depressed. Help! Now, what's, now our, what, what's this week's movie therapy question? Well, we got a call from one of our longtime listeners, Ken in New Jersey, and this is what he has to say. Hey, Ray and Christian. It's Ken from New Jersey, and I need some real movie therapy help. I've got two friends, 
one male and one female who both recently ended long relationships, want a marriage. Um, they don't want to go out. They don't want to be social. They're hanging home. And I don't think that's a good idea. So I'm thinking a movie night, either a theater or you know, something at the house. But my problem is what? What what do you show somebody like that? What kind of movie? Do you go pure comedy so they can forget what they're going through? Or relationship films that they can identify with? And would you put different movie therapy for a guy than for a woman? Any help you can give me would be really important. Thanks a lot. Oh, Ken, you're a good friend to be looking out for your friends. That's and, right. You know, uh, first things first, for movie therapy... Rafer and I are not real doctors. We're just movie doctors. <laughs> so we can't really tell your friends. We're not supposed to tell your friends what to do in real life. But if I were a real doctor, I'd say, set those friends up with each other. That's right. Yeah, just set them up. That's right. But because we're just movie doctors, we are going to recommend some movies for you to help you and your friends through this situation. We've picked out three. So the first of these movies is Shirley Valentine. This is a movie from 1989, and it stars Pauline Collins. It was nominated for a couple of Oscars. It's about a middle-aged woman. She decides to go on an adventure, finds herself having an affair in Greece, and then she finds herself opening up gradually to the possibility of a whole new life in all sorts of different ways. Not with the person that she had her fling with, but with herself and with the world. I've led such a little life. And even that'll be over pretty soon. I have allowed myself to lead this little life when inside me there was so much more. I just think it's such a great movie of hope and a great way to laugh at the ridiculousness of dating when you're older and uh, to enjoy the world and see things that are not based in just the security of a relationship, but becoming whole yourself. I really love this movie. That's rare to see on screen, yeah. I think. Um, and, okay, the next one that we chose was Swingers from 1996. Everyone probably knows this movie. I think it's worth watching because many of us probably have not seen it since those grungy swinging years <laughs> in the 90s. Um, but this this is the movie that uh, that shot both uh, Vince Vaughn and uh, John Favreau to fame. They John Favreau plays a guy who is gone through a breakup, he's out on the dating scene, he's trying to get back in the swing of things, and not having a very good time, not quite managing it. And basically the whole film is about him trying to be a man, be on his own, and get a little confidence in himself. I don't think she liked me anyway. Oh, Mike, I'm telling you, man. She thought you were money. I don't think so. I heard them both talking. Both those girls thought you were money. They're good friends. And I think one of the things we both really like about this film is its ending, which has a really a really tender, sweet, small moment of an ending that kind of says a lot more than you would kind of think for such a, for such a little thing in someone's life. Uh, this in, in the ending of this movie, it has a great magnitude, and uh, and I I bought it. I bought it hook, line, and sinker at the time, and I still think it's a really good, funny, great movie. And our final recommendation is 500 Days of Summer. This came out in 2009. And Reefer doesn't like this movie as much as I do. I have some reservations about this film. <laughs> but here's why I think this is an important film. You may have heard the uh, little phrase, it's called a breakup because it's broken. <laughs> yes. 
I think that's a really good little thing to remind ourselves of when we're going through a breakup or to remind our friends of when they're going through a breakup. Because sometimes you might just be obsessing over it, thinking, can I get that person back? What did I do wrong? Blah, 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 blah. Maybe it was the wrong thing to break up. Maybe we should be back together. But 500 Days of Summer reminds us it's called a breakup because it's broken. And here's why. Let's go back through all of the steps of why we got together in the first place. Now let's examine things more closely and remember this is why we don't need to be together anymore. And that's fine. We don't need to be together anymore. We can move on. We can do other things. This was not the best fit for us. Or maybe it was only the best fit for a little while because this had a shelf life. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that when we're going through breakups. So you have a boyfriend? No. Why not? Because I don't want one. Come on. I don't believe that. You don't believe that a woman could enjoy being free and independent? Aren't you a lesbian? No, I'm not a lesbian. I just don't feel comfortable being anyone's girlfriend. I don't actually feel comfortable being anyone's anything, you know. I hope that your friends uh, can look at these movies and maybe take some of those lessons away. Maybe they could watch them together. Oh, yes, they could. Holding hands in bed. (laughs) Ah! Oh, Kristen, don't rush things. (laughs) Okay, we're going to close out, as always, with trivia. Last week, we were talking about How to Train Your Dragon 2, which I liked more than Kristen did. Yes. Kristen was not a huge fan. We played another dragon movie for you. We asked you to name it. Here's the clip. You do? I love you, too. And here's the right answer. Hey, guys. This is Adam from Cape Cod, and I know the answer to your dragon-related trivia, and that is, of course, Pete's Dragon. A very underrated, in my opinion, uh, this movie. Maybe it's just because it's from my youth, but it's, it's an entertaining one at the very least, with uh, some interesting musical scores, including a uh, jaw harp. So, yeah, Pete's uh, Dragon. Adam, great job. Fantastic. Nice, yeah, nice detail on the jaw harp. <laughs> jaw harp? Do you love a jaw harp? I. <laughs> It's perhaps the only instrument I can play. Oh, I love the jaw harp. If that. Next time you're bringing it, Rayford. Next time you're going to play the jaw harp. (laughs) Listeners would love that. (laughs) All right. And then uh, for this week's trivia, in honor of movie musicals, we're asking you, a lot of movie musicals are based on stage musicals. True. Almost all of them that I can think of, but uh, not all of them are. We're going to play a clip of a movie musical. That movie musical is not based on a stage play. Tell us, what is that movie musical? If you know, call 5717movies. Or you can always visit us at facebook.com slash movie date podcast.